Please open your bulletins um, and, and your, your Bibles to John chapter 12, but you're going to find your bulletins particularly helpful uh, today because we want to be reading this passage of the um, triumphal entry uh, sort of responsively. So there's places that you can see uh, in your bulletin that are in bold. Uh, you can see that in verse, um, what is that, verse 15, 13, and then verse uh, 21. Uh, those are your parts in bold, and then you're going to um, be hearing myself and Megan and Mike uh, reading the, the rest of the account. But we're going to begin in verse 12 of John chapter 12. This is God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm, uh, branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, Lord, we pray that you would bless uh, the reading and hearing and receiving of your word, that you would show us more of the glory of the triumphal entry, uh, more of the glory of the cross, uh, more of the glory of the eternal life that you promise us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, um, the hour has finally come according uh, to Jesus, right? There's uh, two, two things, two very uh, poignant, prominent things that are spoken in these verses. Uh, we could focus on a lot of different things, but I want to look at where Jesus says that the hour has come, right? Um, and then the, the Pharisees, who obviously are opposing Jesus and not at all happy <laughs> about this hour that has come, they say something very significant. They say, look how the world has gone after him. And so we're going to we're going to pay attention to those two things uh, in particular this morning. Uh, so, yeah, at, at last, um, the hour has come for Jesus as he, as he makes his way into Jerusalem. 
I mean, you, you could probably uh, come up with some educated estimates of how many times prior uh, Jesus had made a similar journey into Jerusalem, <clears throat> maybe for one of the feasts, uh, you know, for tabernacles or for, uh, for, you know, in this case for Passover, all, all of the times uh, in his adult life, or even as a child, right, um, when he would join uh, Joseph and Mary and head into Jerusalem. I mean, even from when he was eight days old, he was making this journey into Jerusalem and over the multitude of times uh, a year and over the multitude of years, all of those trips culminate in, in this trip. And this week, as he's moving in and out of Jerusalem, this is the last time uh, that he's going to be uh, in the old city. So it's leading, all those prior trips have, have led up to this one. And, and all along the way, um, previously, he's been telling his disciples that the hour is coming and it's on its way. And you can go all the way back to chapter two uh, in John's gospel where Jesus does his very first miracle, right? And, and maybe you remember that was at the wedding at Cana. And there's this problem where they run out of wine and uh, Mary comes to Jesus, his mother, and she says that they've run out of wine. They have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So it's still in the future. It's, it's still on its way, but it's not here yet. Jump forward a couple more chapters, and Jesus has this very strange encounter with this woman at the well. Uh, and if you're new you know, to, to the church or new to the Bible and don't know this story, uh, it's, it's a longer story, but let me just summarize by saying she's a woman who's got a past, she's got a reputation, and the disciples come along and they see Jesus having this conversation with this woman, and they're like, why are you talking to her? You, you, don't you know who she is? You shouldn't be talking to her. But Jesus welcomes her. And he, and he, and he welcomes the world, right? And, and he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So it's on its way, and it's even so close that you can taste it, you can touch it, you can smell it. You know, it's here, but it's not here, and, you know, we're in this in-between thing. Um, and then a couple more chapters, right? You hear about the opposition uh, to Jesus, how as early as John chapter 5, the, um, the, the religious establishment is, is plotting to get rid of Jesus, even to just... It just says it bluntly to kill him. But that hour's coming, right? And, and Jesus says to them who, who are opposing him, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This hour is coming. It's a day of judgment, an hour of judgment, and it's on its way. It's close. It's, it's even here. You know, it, it's, it's encroaching. Uh, and then finally, we hear Jesus on Palm Sunday say that it's here. The hour's arrived. Jesus answered them in verse 23, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, all right, what is he talking about? The hour has come to be glorified. How is he going to be glorified? Well, he's going to be glorified because he's going to bear much fruit. Well, how is he going to bear much fruit? Well, because the hour has come for Jesus like a kernel of wheat, like a seed that, that, that's dried up and is hard and is put into the ground, but then sort of rises back up and bears much fruit. Jesus, like that seed, is going to die and he's going to be buried in the ground and he's going to rise again and he's going to bear much fruit. That's how he's going to be glorified. That hour has come. And he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the hour has come to provide eternal life for those who trust in him, for those uh, to whom the Father has given him. Later on, chapter 17, you know, Jesus has the last supper with the disciples, and then he prays, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So this, this hour that Jesus had been predicting and saying it's on its way, get ready, it's near, it's coming, it's here. The hour for Jesus to be glorified. The hour for him to give eternal life to those who he's going to pay this atoning sacrifice for, to give them eternal life, to build his church, to bear the fruit of the church. So we spend a lot of our times waiting for the hour to come, right? And, and we do this throughout our days, throughout our weeks, we're waiting, waiting for this person to arrive, waiting for this event to come, waiting for, you know, things to get better, things to settle down, you know, life to, to stop being so crazy. And we long and we wait and we pine. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus waited. He longed. He pined. And finally, the hour was here. Palm Sunday is Jesus' way of telling us, it's here. Your waiting is over, and his kingdom is coming, right? Um, <clears throat> with that said, like, like, so we've looked at Jesus predicting the hour coming. Palm Sunday comes, and the hour is here. Can I take a moment, like in your outline, we're just calling this a, like an excursus. Uh, can I take a moment to acknowledge that a lot of times it feels like the hour is late? I thought he said he was coming. I thought he said the hour was here, but... Where's his kingdom? Where's, where's the glory? Where's the fruit? Where's the, where's the benefit? Where's the blessing? Where, 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 things don't seem very different, right? Like, why doesn't Jesus come? If he said he was coming, why doesn't he come? And, um, you know, we don't, we're not going to read the entire chapter and go all into it, but, but just contextually, I want you to understand that Palm Sunday happens a week after Jesus had been in Bethany with Martha and Mary where he raised Lazarus, right? Do you remember that story? 
Um, you can go back and read John chapter 11 to get the details. But what you need to know, what's pertinent, is that Lazarus is um, the brother of Martha and Mary. And, and John tells us in this previous chapter that Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and they were good friends. And Bethany was Jesus' sort of home base, presumably at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house. And he would go into Jerusalem back and forth from Bethany, a couple of miles out from Jerusalem, from this house, from this home, with these people. And Lazarus gets sick, like deathly sick. And Jesus knows he's going to die. Jesus delays coming to heal Lazarus. Instead, he knows that, that this sickness will not be unto death. He's sleeping is what he says to his disciples. And then when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Martha runs out to meet Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus goes into the house where Mary is and Mary um, came, I'm sorry, Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him and she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like you can, it's the exact same words which tells us something about Mary and Martha. A, that they're close. B, that over the past four days, they've been going over this and over this and over this so often that it had become like a rehearsal where it just became a script. Like, where, where was he? Why wasn't he here? He could have saved our brother. Why? I don't understand. Where was he? If he had been here, our brother would not have died. And that's, those, those very words just spew right out of their mouths on separate occasions to Jesus. And what's really remarkable is that Jesus doesn't rebuff them. He's not impatient with them. Well, who, what, what do you, who, who do you think you are speaking to me, the king of kings, that way? Don't you know your place, woman? You know, he doesn't do that. He just receives it. And then he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Where, where was he? Why didn't he come? Why, why didn't Jesus prevent this, right? Like how long have the saints been crying out, how long, O oh Lord? Um, like we do it, our, our fathers and mothers did it, the, the saints who have gone before us have done it. And it goes all the way back to the first century where Mary and Martha are saying, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And it goes back even further than that to like the Psalms and the old covenant, like people praying, Lord, how long? Why do you delay? Why aren't things better? Where is your kingdom? Why hasn't it come? And why isn't your will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Like how long have we been confounded by the the twofold reality of Jesus saying, the hour has come, and it's still to come. The kingdom's here, and it's still coming. How long have we been wrestling with that tension, right? Um, our daughter, Sarah, lives in Nashville. Five minutes away from Covenant Presbyterian Church, our sister church, like our denomination, our people, right? Where they host that elementary school where that shooter came in and took the lives of three children 
three of the staff, and everybody in Nashville is going, what? What happened? Everybody in that church, everybody in that school is going, what happened? Everybody that, you know, Sarah works with uh, Young Life and, you know, volunteers at the high school that is the, the high school for that school, you know, that, that private school that feeds, that elementary school feeds the middle school and the high school where she, where she serves. And they're all going, what happened? Jesus, if you had been here, these kids wouldn't have died. Jesus, if you had been here, these, these, these adults wouldn't have died. They don't simply ask that question in Nashville. They ask that, we're asking that question too, right? The pastor in Nashville named Scott Sauls, um, he's got a lot of good stuff to say. He wrote a blog, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember which day. Uh, Kyle did a great job with the greeting, um, you know, just giving us some things to chew on. But let me, let me read to you Scott Saul's words, because um, I think it, it, it's in keeping with this whole tension of like, it's, it's now, but it's coming, and where are we in, this, in, in, in the kingdom? He says, why would a good and loving God who is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, and who said, let the little children come to me, and who promises again and again to be our shield, our protector, and our defender, why would he allow for the senseless loss of life for these precious little ones? That's a pastor asking that question. What do you think the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, whose daughter was one of the ones whose lives was taken, what kind of questions do you think he's asking? Scott Sauls goes on to say, why would, why, why would God not foil and fail the shooter's plans before a single shot was fired? Why, why would the one who holds even the hearts of kings in his hands, not by the power of persuasion over the hearts of all humans, redirect the intent of the assailant's heart as well? And why would God allow for one of his own image bearers to go through to such an inexplicable and horrific place and then follow through with her plan? He says, we already know the answer to such questions, which is that we will never know the answer to such questions. Lord, if you had been here, those children and those teachers would not have died. And you can just fill in the blank for any and and all of the places where, where you and I experience the, the pain and the sting of life in a fallen world. Lord, if you had been here, fill in the blank. Where is he? I thought he was coming. He is coming. The very last words of our Bible in Revelation 22 is Jesus' promise, I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you believe him? 
Can you trust him? How can you trust him? He said he was coming, but if he said he was coming, why didn't he come? And how come these things happen? Can you trust him? If so, why? The um, crowds that were in Passover, <clears throat> that, were, that were in Jerusalem for Passover were immense. Um, Josephus was a a uh, Jewish historian working for Rome in around 60 AD before Jerusalem was destroyed, they were still having Passover. And in one of Josephus's documents, he said there must have been around two and a half million people in Jerusalem for Passover, which is obscenely exaggerated. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, historians today, uh, one article said that Jerusalem is a city of some 55,000 people in the first century, but during major feasts could swell to 180,000. So let's just assume that Josephus is exaggerating. All that to say, it was a mob scene if it was somewhere between 180,000 and 2.7 million. Uh, on, on, on par with, you know, you know, what would be a contemporary example might be Wilmore, Kentucky, home of Asbury University, where this revival broke out in February, right? Wilmore, Kentucky has 6,000 people in it, two stoplights. Do you know how many people traveled to Asbury University to go to chapel <laughs> for their revival? Estimated 50,000 people showed up in that tiny little town of 6,000 people and two stoplights overran the place. And that's how Jerusalem must have felt. And these people who were in town for Passover wanted to see Jesus. The next day, verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took palm branches and you know how it went, right? Hosanna. So you've got this enormous crowd coming from Jerusalem because they want to see Jesus. They've, they're there, uh, and they meet Jesus coming in from Bethany, and Jesus has another crowd with him. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him in Bethany um, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness because of their witness. The reason why the crowd in Jerusalem went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so you've got this enormous throng of people coming to see Jesus. Because they had heard. He raised a man from the dead. He makes sad things come untrue. He can... He can release a man from the chains of death. Certainly this man can release us from the chains of Rome, right? We want to get on board with his kingdom. And then I'll, you can just hear the sneer in the, in the voices of the Pharisees in verse 19 as they say to one another, watching this, both crowds converge on Jesus. You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Like, they're so exasperated. They're so irritated. They're so just at their wits end. What do we do with this man? We've got to get rid of him. And they didn't realize it, but their words were prophetic. Indeed, the world, truly, the whole world was going after Jesus. It wasn't just the, 
those uh, people celebrating the Jewish Passover in Jerusalem were coming to meet Jesus. It wasn't just the, the Jewish community around Jesus on his itinerant mission, you know, in Bethany coming into Jerusalem and meeting there, but there are non-Jewish people who are Greek and Gentile and, you know, um, who are God-fearing but not circumcised. They are in Jerusalem as well, and they come to the disciples. They go to Philip in verse 21. Um, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus too. Can we see Jesus? And you see how the world is going after him. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? Of course you do. Of course we do. Even if, even if you're here and you, don't, you wouldn't say you're necessarily one of his disciples, like you're not a follower of him, but you, who would pass up an opportunity to see Jesus, right? That would be phenomenal. Would you know where to look for him? If you knew he was around, he was here generally, would you know specifically where to go? to see him? Well, according to John 11, you could find him outside of Lazarus's tomb. And all of our Bibles generally translate, you know, the shortest verse of the Bible in, in John 11, Jesus wept, right? And we, we don't know what to do with that word apart from just sort of imagining Jesus as being you know, dignified and, and putting on a brave face with a single tear, you know, just gently cascading down his cheek as he weeps in front of Lazarus' tomb. And it feels stoic and poetic somehow. But look, if I can be candid, all of the scholars and all the commentators tell us it's, it's not that sanitary. But the Greek word that's translated wept it's just a meltdown of hot, angry tears, like a, a protest where, where Jesus is losing it because he's overcome with the sadness of death and how it's destroyed the life of his friend and the, the, his, 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 his friends you know, that care about him and that he cares about, who he loves. That's where you'd find Jesus. You'd find Jesus in Gethsemane with sweat like, like drops of blood, overcome with agony over the prospect before him of going to the cross and enduring the curse for our sins. That's where you'd find Jesus. And you'd find Jesus watching over the city of Jerusalem, looking over it and, and grieving over the fact that they won't come to him and that they're like sheep without a shepherd and, and how he longs to gather them under his wings like a, like a hen with her chicks. And you would find Jesus uh, in the temple raging against uh, racism and, and legalism and, and you'd find Jesus among the children, right? Like rebuking those who devalue them and ignore them and push them away. And you'd, you'd find Jesus 
in, uh, among the sick and the poor, touching them and loving them and showing compassion on them. And you would find Jesus among the weak and the vulnerable, um, defending them against those in authority who are abusing that authority and um, um, you know, hurting and harming the people they're supposed to be caring for. And if you want to see Jesus, you look for him in the courts where he's been falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely tried, and he's been beaten and he's been whipped and he's been falsely sentenced to death. And if you want to see Jesus, you got to go outside the city among the other persona non grata whose society rejects and shuns where he is tortured and mocked and ridiculed and crucified as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's where you look for him. If you want to see him, you go to those places. Who, who looks for a king in those kinds of settings. What kind of king does those things, feels those things, and expresses those things? What kind of kingdom is he establishing where, where those are the things that God says are precious to him? To bring us, you know, our pain and our brokenness and our, our, our struggle and our difficulty. And people like struggled with this. His own followers couldn't make sense of, of the kind of king that Jesus was and the kind of kingdom that he's bringing. And earlier in John chapter 6, after many of his disciples said, enough, I, I, I don't get it. I, this isn't what I signed on for. And they turned back and no longer walked with him. And he says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, well, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go with our grief and our despair? With our anger and our confusion? With our fear and our guilt? with our pain and our scars. Where, where else are you going to go? What other king is going to bind up those wounds? And what other figurehead is going to make sense of those things? John Stott wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. And if you haven't read it, um, it's phenomenal. And he quotes a, a I guess he's a poet. It's a poem by Edward Shalito. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but the poem is called Jesus of the Scars. And he writes, if we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We have, 
We must have sight of, of thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. Jesus' scars tell us about the kind of king he is. Our scars tell stories, right? I've got scars. You've got scars. I've got scars on my fingers. I've got a scar from that bread knife a couple of years back. It was too dull. And whoosh, whoops. I've got scars from the X-Acto knife when I was building a model when I was 12 or 13 years old. I don't know. You know, we've got scars from our accidents. We've got scars from our injuries. We've got scars from our surgeries. And those scars tell stories. Some of our scars tell horror stories. Scars that come from malice and abuse. Every scar tells a story. And Jesus' scars tell a story too. Jesus' scars tell us the story of a God who loves us and who suffers with us. Where else are you going to go? And Jesus' scars tell us the story of a God who loves us and who suffered for us as an atoning sacrifice, crucified in our place to take our sins away. And Jesus' scars tell us a story about a God who suffered on the cross not just to forgive our sins against one another, but he died on the cross to forgive our sins against him. What king does that? What God does that? Where else are we going to go? I, I know we can't always make sense of why all this stuff is going on, but where else are you going to go? But to a God who says, yeah, I've got scars too. They're for you. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus' scars tell us the story about a God who suffers in order to end suffering. And they tell us about a God who calls us to love others, to, to suffer for others, and to show the world that that's the kind of God he is. To be his representatives in the world as we love our neighbors and suffer for them. Because if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for, for coming. Thank you for bringing that hour. Thank you that that hour is still coming. We, we live in the in-between and we don't always know how to make sense of it. But we thank you that you're a God who welcomes our cry, how long? We thank you that you're a God who isn't impatient with our confusion, isn't impatient with our frustration, who indeed was frustrated too. Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to wait, 
Give us the grace of patience. Give us the grace to show the world that you're a God who suffers with us. That you're a God who suffers for us. And that you're a God who suffers in order to end suffering. Thank you that this is your kingdom. And thank you that we can be a part of it through repentance. Through believing in the one who suffered for us. That he took away our sins. Lord, would you bear much fruit in us. Bear much fruit through this congregation, through the eternal life that you've given to us through this gospel and that we, through, as your agents, can, can offer to others as they lay hold of you and as they, they hear about you uh, through your representatives here. Lord, we pray uh, that you would equip each of us and give us courage and boldness to, to, to proclaim your kingdom and to tell others that the hour has come and is coming. And Lord, would you uh, equip us toward that end? Lord, would you bless our church? Would you bless um, those in our, our congregation? We think particularly of the Moss family. We thank you for Joel and Joy. And-